Our podcast deals with distressing topics, and this episode contains discussion about suicide. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. This podcast is about my search for answers. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We started putting children behind barbed wire. All persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. Episode 6, A Ripple Effect, The National Justice Project. Welcome back to Women and Children First. So far, we've explored Australia's treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum. We've looked at it from a number of angles. We've discussed the historical influences that are echoed in our current policy. We've learnt about the legal arena and some of the political events that led to this tough stance on people seeking asylum. We've tried to make sense of the economics, and in our last episode we met some of the key human rights organisations that support refugees and people seeking asylum. You may be wondering why we haven't heard from refugees and people seeking asylum so far. This is intentional. I made a conscious decision not to ask refugees and people seeking asylum to relive their trauma. There are countless traumatic stories. I recommend people read Behrouz Bashani's autobiographical book, No Friend But The Mountains. It tells the true story of his harrowing journey to Christmas Island and subsequent detention on Manus. And I also recommend the temporary podcast by the Caldor Centre. The podcast features members of the Legacy Caseload who tell their own stories. I'll put a link up in the show notes. In this episode, we're going to meet and speak with some key staff members from the National Justice Project, or NJP. The NJP is a not-for-profit human rights organisation that advocates for the rights of people from all walks of life. I volunteered as a law clerk at the NJP during my legal studies. I was struck by the amazing work being done and inspired by the passion and resolve of the staff. I spoke with founder and director Professor George Newhouse about how he started working as an advocate. Well, it was a funny road. It wasn't a road that you would expect. I had a career in banking and finance. I worked in New York with JP Morgan and in London with Clifford Chance. Um, And I spent much of my career practicing commercial law. Uh, I think what really changed me, or, you know, my epiphany came from a lunch I attended listening to David Marr speak about his book, CivX. And as I sat there listening to David tell the story, I realized how little I knew about the way our government was treating asylum seekers and refugees, and I was quite horrified about what was happening to asylum seekers and refugees on the high seas. I was horrified about what our government was doing. I was horrified about the lies that were being told, and I was ashamed of myself for not knowing and also my failure to act. And I I think when I left that lunch, I, in my soul, I had committed myself to taking action because I had not been active in that space. And yet my family, my grandfather, had gone after World War II to Europe and brought out orphaned refugees from from death camps that had been um, released by the Allies and brought them to Australia to resettle, particularly in Queensland. My family originally came from Queensland. And given that heritage, I was impelled to take action. Now, I didn't know what action I would take, but within two weeks of that lunch, um, I was watching Late Line, and the story of Cornelia Rao and Vivian Salon 
had broken. And, and in particular, Vivian's story uh, had captured my imagination. She'd been, she was wrongfully deported. She was missing in the Philippines. And she left two young boys behind in Australia. And I felt for those boys. And I contacted her brother, who lived in Brisbane, and just offered to help in any way I could. And I thought no more of it until a few days later that uh, I, I received a call from uh, Vivian's brother, and the rest is history. He asked for help. I got involved in, in Vivian's case, and then that led to Cornelia's case. From there, the rest is history. But that was my, my turning point. Uh, my blood was boiling over the discovery about how our government was treating asylum seekers and refugees. So you came out of that lunch resolved to do something about the treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum. What happened next? I, I was very fortunate that in around 2011, I was able to transform from, you know, the commercial law area and dedicate myself to pro bono work when Shine Lawyers offered me uh, a position in their pro bono team. And it was an amazing opportunity, not just that I could dedicate all my time to pro bono work, but I got to work with Dan Mori. If you recall, Dan Mori was uh, David Hicks' lawyer, and he brought some amazing US-style strategies to our team. Dan and I spent nearly five years at Shine, and we were able, with Shine's blessing, to establish a not-for-profit charitable organisation called the National Justice Project and continue our good work there. So that idea really did come from Dan's experience in the United States. And I think one of the foundational strategies that Dan brought to the National Justice Project was a focus on US-style strategic litigation which was a bit unusual here in Australia. Can you tell me a little more about strategic litigation? Yeah, look, we are very fortunate at the National Justice Project. We aren't like a community legal centre or legal aid who take people who knock on their door. We act strategically. So we'll spend time thinking about a particular problem, where we can use our limited resources, how we can work constructively to advocate on the basis of a court case, and then we'll take on a case for a bigger purpose. If you look at our logo, it's a ripple effect. Our strategy is not just to help one client, but have a, have a ripple effect that magnifies that impact. So, you know, one of our key strategic cases was taken for a child on Nauru, and that strategic case was brought to benefit all offshore detainees. Up until that point, the Australian government had been incredibly successful in arguing that the asylum seekers who were transferred offshore were not Australia's responsibility. They were being detained by another government. The M68 case, which went to the High Court, stated very clearly that the individuals were being held by the PNG government if they're on Manus or by the Nauruan government if they're on Nauru. But there were hints in that case. If you read it carefully, there were little gems about the Australian government's role. In effect, the asylum seekers were totally dependent on the Australian government, even though they'd been transferred to another country's jurisdiction. And we thought very long and hard about how we could use that little you know, crack in the door for us to create new law. And strangely enough, we had to use tort law. You know, everyone thinks about human rights lawyers using administrative law or constitutional law. But our founding fathers, and I say fathers quite intentionally because there were no women who, who were in their founding fathers who signed our constitution. They were middle-aged, privileged men, and they actively ruled out having a Bill of Rights because at the time of the Constitution, there was a gold rush and having equality before the law or equal rights was going to 
uh, rule out racist laws to stop Chinese um, uh, immigrants from going to the gold fields. And that was something that was high in the minds of the founding fathers. Now, with that in mind, we had to resort to tort law. You know, people often think about tort lawyers as ambulance chasers. Well, in this case, we used the law for good. And we proved that the Australian government had a duty of care to individuals on Nauru and Manus where their health was at risk, where their lives were at stake. That was a seminal case that established the government's duty of care. What did that legal change lead to? As you say, that was a seminal case. But we were able, on the basis of that case, to start getting all the kids off Nauru. And that that led to a narrative being developed in Australian society that there was something horrible going on on Nauru. And it wasn't just the National Justice Project that, that, that pushed for change. We saw the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, and organisations like World Vision get behind this push because you had judges saying that this was, you know, inhumane conduct, even if they didn't use those words. The descriptions of what was going on on Nauru were so horrific that the media picked it up and and it struck at the heart of many Australians. And, And that's the importance of some of these strategic cases. It's not just the law. But we live in a time of fake news. But when a judge starts making a decision that refers to the fact of what's going on and the horror of what's going on, people actually believe it. Uh, And it's very difficult for the government to say, oh, it's just fake news. So that, that head of steam and that pressure developed in the community based on the narrative that developed around our cases, you then saw... Uh, Karen Phelps elected to Parliament, and and that push led to the Medivac bill. And I can't say that the Medivac bill was um, a direct, you know, relationship between our case and a change in the law. But I'll tell you this, that change in the law could not have happened without the narrative that the, that arose around our cases. And I can tell you that Karen Phelps was talking to us regularly about what was going on on Nauru, getting background information, and ultimately around 500 people were medevaced from Nauru Nauru and PNG to Australia. We've discussed the medevac law with a few guests. What are your thoughts on medevac and why did the government repeal the legislation? The medevac law was the first improvement, legislative improvement, in the conditions of detention, whether onshore or offshore, for asylum seekers in 30 years. It was a profound change, and the government could not reverse it fast enough. As soon as they had a majority in Parliament, it was one of the first pieces of legislation that they they reversed. They They were apoplectic about that legislation. But it's worth noting... That was the first positive improvement in the way Australia treated asylum seekers in 30 years. That's astounding. The first positive legislation in 30 years. It's kind of odd that the government so badly wanted to repeal the law because you can argue that it played in their favour politically by taking those decisions out of their hands and putting them in the hands of of medicos. I agree. I, I think it shows the capriciousness and the um, the personal nature of this government. They could not bear the fact that someone had taken their power away from them and vested it in a panel of doctors. Can you imagine the cruelty and inhumanity of politicians who did not want the medical care and safety of individuals to be independently assessed. They wanted to control their lives. And I think the harm that's being done to individuals on Nauru and Manus is intentional. The government clearly wants to send a message 
to anyone that wants to come to this country that if you come by boat, your life will be so miserable that you will want to return. Don't bother trying to come here. We will show you no compassion. You will be left on a desert island with very few benefits or resources. And that's, I think it's quite intentional. It's absolutely bizarre considering the community support that we're seeing at the moment for the family from Biloela. And, and Biloela is a great example. It, it, it really goes to the heart of your last question, which is, you know, that could, why did the government reverse the legislation? I mean, they could easily let the Biloela family return to where they came from in Biloela, but they won't because it's a matter of pride. They cannot show the world that they have compassion, that people are allowed to stay in this country. They want to control who comes to this country. It's, it's exactly what John Howard said, I think, in 2001 in that election. We will decide who comes into this country, not you. We're in power. We have the privilege and we'll decide. That's true, but it's important to remember that we ultimately decide who governs this country. We've discussed the cost of detention. Just looking at the example of the family from Biloela, we can see how unsustainable this approach is. I mean, we live in incredibly difficult times. We're all struggling through COVID. Uh, Some people uh, have lost their businesses, their livelihoods. Um, there There are people around Australia who are desperate for medical care, in particular mental health care, people with disabilities who can't access um, services, people in who can't access aged care. Now, can you imagine what we could do with the millions of dollars that have been spent on this one family who are no threat to this country, who are who have beautiful children who are being treated in the most cruel manner I can imagine, being locked up for years, um, we could do so much more with that money. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. And yet Australians allow our government to get away with squandering money. I mean, I read all in the paper recently that we renewed a contract uh, in PNG for a contractor that basically has no work to do. Um, it, it's, it's frightening how much money is being sent down the drain, all to protect the credibility of this government in their campaign to stop boats and be perceived as tough on borders. And the double standards are very difficult to reconcile. For example, we look at how Peter Dutton, when he was minister in 2018, decided to stop the deportation of a French au pair who worked for an executive of the Australian Football League. Or the unsolicited offer to white South African farmers to come to Australia. It's very difficult to not see this as racially motivated. I think racism lies at the heart of the policy, but, I mean, very sadly, it plays well in the community, or at least the government thinks it plays well in the community, and that they win elections on the basis of that messaging. If you recall the Tampa election uh, under John Howard, uh, a lot of Liberal Party uh, strategists believe that, you know, being tough on borders plays well. I I do think that people are a bit sick of it now, and they're also sick of the cruelty and inhumanity. So that benefit is, is marginal these days, but it still exists. And I think a lot of strategists see it as something of benefit to the Liberal Party, I mean, look, you also see it being played out in America on their border with South Americans. The the Trump campaign used immigrants as a tool quite effectively to bring people on side and win elections. It, it's something that now is in uh, political playbooks around the world. You've worked on hundreds of cases, but could you share with us the story of a case that resonated with you? Now, this isn't some attempt to put these stories forward as outliers or even exemplars. The reason I ask is because the rhetoric in political discourse has removed human beings. Telling personal stories brings that human element back into the discourse. It's sad to say, but I think that one of my roles is to present a very 
strong face to my clients. They don't want to see me break down. Um, they want me to do my best when I'm advocating for them in court or strategizing about how we can help them. But there are a couple of cases that really shocked me to my core and, and you know, privately I've been very moved by. I've been moved by most of my clients. But, you know, to see one of the uh, first young kids come back to Australia from Nauru, a young 12-year-old girl who had attempted suicide, whose um, wrists and legs were like matchsticks, you know, like images that you'd see from World War II, and to see her lying in bed unable to move really as a father and as a human being just uh, ripped me apart. And I do think it really spurred me on to fight even harder for those kids. And I don't think Australians really realise the damage that our government has caused to children of asylum seekers offshore. I mean, what they've done to adults is incredibly harsh and inhumane, but they've really destroyed the lives of some of these young children. And I, I found that the hardest to stomach uh, in many ways. George Newhouse, dealing with these sorts of situations must be very hard. How do you maintain? Alex, it is hard. And the longer I've been in this game, the more I realise I need to take care. I am a workaholic. I love my work. It is my hobby. And I think what is a protective factor in all this is that we're actually giving people some hope and we're achieving decisions and changes that will benefit both them and others. So life-changing acts can inspire you and, and keep your head above water when you're looking at so much misery. But it is hard. I mean, but let me tell you, Alex, you've You've hit on a, a, a bit of a, a nerve with me. I mean, my family have been committed to helping others. I mentioned earlier my grandfather went to Europe after, after World War II and, and helped bring out orphaned children to Australia, orphaned refugees, refugees who'd been in death camps. Um, he actually passed away um, on his way, on a bus, on his way back home, from a charitable board meeting. <laughs> now, he was in his 80s and he'd had a good run, but that's the commitment that I've grown up with in our family. And, um, you know, my father was very committed to helping others as well. So for me, it's been imbued in me from my childhood. But I, I think what protects me from mental harm is the fact that we are doing good and we're achieving things. But I, I can tell you that we have had to introduce psychological services into our staff meetings. Um, every couple of months, we have a psychologist come and talk to us. And people in the office are offered individual one-on-one -on -one counselling if they need it, because it's heartbreaking work. And I think you've heard from some of my other team members just how hard they found this work. Yes, I have spoken with other NJP staff and I also got to see firsthand just how hard you and the team work to support your clients. Our migration policy must impact on our standing in the region and internationally. Correct. We are definitely not leaders. I mean, you had China recently come out criticising Australia's human rights record, focusing on the way we treat asylum seekers. And, and that puts us in a difficult position when we want to turn the tables and look at the way that China is treating democracy in Hong Kong and the way that they're treating the Uyghur people in concentration camps in their own nation. We do not come with clean hands and our Asian neighbours are not listening to us when we are asking them to hold themselves to higher standards. They just point the finger right back at us and say, look at what you do. International law doesn't have the same enforcement options as other types of law, but we are obliged to bring our domestic law into line with international conventions that we're a party to. 
like the Refugee Convention, for example? Unfortunately, our Migration Act does not accord with the Refugee Convention. No matter what the government tells you, it does not. It means that we're in breach of international law. It's, it means that we're in breach of um, conventions that our nation has signed, but it's politically expedient for this government to carve out large sections of the Migration Act that, that really protected asylum seekers and refugees who came here after World War II. And it totally contradicts the spirit of the Refugee Convention, which developed as a result of the Holocaust and the treatment of refugees in Europe during the horrors of World War II. What are your hopes for the future treatment of people seeking asylum? <sighs> it's a really difficult question, Alex. Um, I know people may criticise me for saying this, but you know, governments are entitled to have political policies. But where I take offence and where I draw the line is where governments are harming individuals, you know? It may be that you're entitled to have a strong border policy, but it has to be humane. You're dealing with human beings. And whatever the government is doing, it is failing in that area. So what would be an optimal outcome, in my view, would be offshore processing, but realistic processing where people actually get to go safely and resettled in third countries that, that can provide them with decent homes quickly. And if you did that, I think you could avoid deaths at sea, which I strongly um, object to. I am a true believer in stopping people from coming by boat because I had to work with the families and the orphans of those who died on Civ 221, Australia's worst maritime disaster in a century. I could not let anyone go through that again. But there are humane alternatives. Processing people in Indonesia and getting them to third countries where they, where they can rebuild their lives quickly is one way of doing that. It's something that Julian Burnside talked about. It's something that I think the Labor government under Gillard talked about. Unfortunately, it didn't get off the ground. But that's the kind of initiative that might save lives and allow people to move on from the, the, the torture and cruelty that they suffered in their home countries in a humane way. Professor George Newhouse, thank you for your time, for your passion and drive, and I hope in the not-too-distant future you and the NJP can direct your efforts to other areas of injustice and that we'll have a more humane policy in place. Neoliberalism has been the dominant political ideology behind our economy since the 1970s. It sees the free market as the most efficient way to distribute wealth and believes in sustained economic growth and individual freedom from government intervention. It's committed to free trade and free movement of capital. Some of the policies we've seen as a result of this economic ideology include privatisation of public utilities, offshoring of jobs, and, and even entire industries. You could argue that neoliberalism has shaped our immigration policies. We've outsourced detention centres, the medical care and security all being run by private companies. We've moved the task of processing people seeking asylum offshore, just like Australia's car manufacturing. We heard from Dr. Daniel Geselbash in our first episode. He's an associate professor at Macquarie University Law School 
and his research focuses on comparative refugee and immigration law. He's also special counsel at the National Justice Project. I spoke with Dr. Geselbash about some of the political and economic issues related to our policies, and I asked him whether there's any influence of neoliberalism in our offshore detention system. There is, but it's missing the most important linchpin of neoliberalism, which is free movement. And uh, so you have a very selective um, approach to picking out uh, certain elements of of neoliberalism. Uh, But when it comes to the fundamental belief in um, free movement and economies of scale, that's that's missing, and so you know if there were, uh, if you're really going to have a neoliberal approach to borders, there would be no borders. Maybe we we can explore that idea a little further, because I mean it's it's still pretty fringe right now. But in the past few years, I've been surprised at how more mainstream this idea is getting. Uh, that really you could pretty much instantaneously end world poverty by just doing away with borders. And many respectable senior ec- economists around the world have run the numbers, and there's a range, but it's basically everyone agrees that the global GDP growth by having no borders would pretty much instantaneously increase our global GDP by many, many fold. And obviously, there's social costs involved, and, um, and those need to be balanced. And I guess the biggest thing is the security concerns that need to be balanced. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. But the more that you can facilitate free movement of individuals, then the greater economic prosperity there is going to be globally. And I think that's like any economist would not disagree with you on that point. I'm saying it's getting mainstream. It's still, I mean, it makes a, a, a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, not just our politicians, I'm sure um, a, lot, a lot of Australians, um, as a lot of citizens of other countries, would would feel uncomfortable by that idea, uh, because there's you know there's non-economic goods uh, or that they value um, stuff like you know their maybe their culture or their language or their history or, or potential views about the societal ills that would come about at all. So, um, and I don't want to dismiss those out of hand, but I just want to emphasize that in purely economic terms, it's a no-brainer. That's very interesting and perhaps a bridge too far right now. I've been thinking about the influence of class on how we treat people seeking asylum that arrive by boat. I know that the people who seek asylum by boat are not all of a particular class, but I think it may come down to the optics I think about how a wealthy person from the same cultural background is welcomed with open arms. Do you think class and race both have an influence? I think there's something we get from the British. And um, I think that, uh, I mean, racism is, I don't want to downplay the the role of racism, because it is there. But, I mean, even beyond the refugee and migration space, I think both in the UK and, and, and both in Australia, I think class plays a much more important role. Uh, and the class can trump racism, basically. Um, and uh, class can trump race. And uh, yeah, a lot of the uncomfortableness people feel about uh, mig- migration in general, and that's why there's been such a push towards the skilled migration and rebranding. But historically in this country, migrants have generally been unskilled. Um, and I think a lot of that flows on to, into, the, into the refugee space as well. Um, and again, there's all these efforts now to try and frame refugees as you know, entrepreneurial or as having certain skills that the, uh, the Australian public needs. You know, we even have a very small boutique program now where companies can sponsor skilled refugees to fill gaps in, in their workforces. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm ambivalent about rhetoric of that sort. And look, I mean, in, in one sense, you know, the more people we can get out here, give access protection is a good thing, but we shouldn't be using the refugee status as we shouldn't be linking our moral obligation, our ethical obligation to protect people to perceived contribution those people are going to make to our society. You're right. It shouldn't be a purely economic argument. There are so many benefits we've gained from the influence of refugees in Australian society. One that's close to my heart is the vibrant and diverse food culture that we have in Australia. There is, however, a strong economic argument about the value refugees bring to our society. 
Is there any evidence that these economic factors have an influence on people's views? That argument's been running for a long time, and it's a completely valid one. And there's been a lot of a lot of research, particularly for, on asylum seekers that arrived by boat, which is the main group that's vilified about uh, their economic contribution um, and their economic outcomes. You know, far above the average Australian. I mean, maybe we can talk about this later, but it goes goes around advocacy and about how to change people's minds about issues like this, and. I think it's been shown now that you're not going to change you know, these deeply held convictions of these people hold, these xenophobic views or classist views that people hold towards refugees by talking about economic benefits that they'll bring. There's a bit of behavioral psychology research in this area that distinguishes between intrinsic values and extrinsic values when it comes to trying to change people's minds. The research findings show that it's very difficult to when you know, deeply held views uh, for, to be changed when you talk about the extrinsic value of things, um, such as things like economic contribution, whereas if you connect with a person's pre-existing belief system and you show them that there's some inherent good in what you're arguing for based on their already pre-existing belief system, that's how you get them to change their view about a particular issue. And I think that's what, that's what we should be focusing on. Um, we should be you know, drumming the line that you, you, you have to do it because, you know, if you were in the same position, that's what you'd expect. If your family was in the same position, you'd want them to be given access to protection. Talk about, you know, Australian values of a fair go. Mm-hmm. I think stuff like that are going to cut through more in the long term than um, these extrinsic calculations about economic contribution. What do you make of the saving lives at sea rationale? I'm not convinced that when some of the politicians use that line, they're using it in a genuine sense. And I guess a lot of caveats to what I can say, what I just said as well. Look, uh, part of the reason we had such significant um, deaths at sea were the fact that there were deliberate decisions made about how we deploy our search and rescue assets. Uh, there were shortcomings in our um, collaboration with Indonesia. So a lot, a lot of people, a lot of boats were drowning within Indonesian waters. Uh, Australia, there were Australian assets nearby that could have intervened, but we didn't want to intervene because we want to take responsibility for those um, um, for those refugees. And so, I mean, we could have done a lot more to save lives. And if they genuinely cared about saving lives at sea, they would have taken those actions. Um, and uh, my statements there were no means an endorsement of Australia's interdiction and pushback policies. Uh, what I want to see is a policy where there's no incentive in the first place for someone to get on that boat. You, you need to have Navy vessels there uh, intercepting, or border force vessels intercepting and pushing boats back at sea, and people will not take the dangerous journey at sea if there's a viable alter- alternative for them. Even if that takes years, if, they knew, if people knew that it would wait you know, a, a, you know, a certain amount of time and they had a reasonable chance of being resettled in Australia – Every single refugee I've ever worked with and I've ever spoken to would much rather wait and go through that process than risk their lives. But that process just does not exist right now. There is certainly nothing that in any way, shape or form resembles anything that comes close to a queue. What you have is a rigged lottery uh, that favours certain characteristics, some of them legitimate, such as you know people in, in immediate danger and, and so it's like a triage system, and some of them very illegitimate, um, which reflect the uh, political whims and tastes of uh, politicians in the receiving country as to what ethnicity, religious backgrounds, what age groups they want to pick at a, or they prefer at a particular time. You've made a great point. Surely a better way to prevent deaths at sea is to go further back in the chain of factors that lead people to get on those boats. Yeah, and look, and you've touched on maybe the one thing that everyone from all political stripes would agree on about the refugee issue, which is the best way to address the issue is to um, address it at source and stop the push factors. Uh, But as you pointed out, we're so far away from that right now. Um, not only are we not reducing the push factors, uh, we're actually actively in, engaged in cre- you know, creating them in the first place. Yes. I'm reminded of Eisenhower's warning about the military-industrial complex. Dr. Gesselbash, can you share a story about a case that's impacted you? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the the, the cases that had the biggest impact on me were a significant cohort i think it was an extended family of i think in the end it was about 16 people we represented that were um all part um, on board the the boat that crashed uh, onto rocks on christmas christmas island in 2011 
and um, I can't remember the number of, of, of total dead, but it was a significant number on, on that on that boat um, had died, and uh, I guess it, uh, and pretty much every single one of our clients had lost multiple very close relatives. I had there was two orphans who had lost both their parents. There were um, another gentleman who lost his wife and his two kids, and um, I think, uh, I mean, that made a huge impact on me. It was quite, I mean, it was a long time ago. It was very early in my career, in my career as well, uh, but. Uh, it really uh, emphasized the point for me that we need to have safe pathways for people to seek protection. And, and you know, while I don't agree with everything that the government does, uh, I, I don't think seeking asylum by boat is, is uh, we shouldn't have to force people to make that choice, which is if they want to seek protection, they have to risk their lives at sea. And so that's really underpinned a lot of my work since then is, you know, how do we build alternate pathways for people, uh, whether from their home countries or from transit countries, to reach Australia. Uh, that just, you know, we haven't done enough work in that area. I mean, this resettlement program is, is great. It's a good start, but uh, the numbers just aren't enough, and they're not delivered in a targeted way. We need, we need people, you know, waiting in Indonesia, people within our region. Um, they need a pathway to be able to apply from, from within the region and be resettled in Australia, and that's uh, a. It's the humane and ethical thing to do, um, and b. It's in, in the long term. It's the only sustainable way uh, we're going to be able to to control our borders and, um, and the the, you know, the boat, boat pushbacks at sea and uh, finding client states like uh, Nauru to to exploit to do our dirty work. Um, it's, it's not going to last forever. And already Papua New Guinea um, had enough, and it's, it's already not participating in our uh, in our arrangements anymore, and um, uh, I imagine Nauru will do the same at some stage. Dr. Daniel Gezelbash, thank you for your time. Emma Hearn is a senior solicitor with the NJP. She started her career as a solicitor working in the Aboriginal Legal Service in Dubbo and specialises in vulnerable client legal matters. I spoke to Emma Hearn about her experience working with the ALS and the NJP and asked her whether there are similarities in the treatment of Indigenous Australians and people seeking asylum. I think so because I think there's a general background and a history of traumatic experiences, of persecution, of having to fight for survival. And although it's in different or it might be evident in different ways, I think those similarities are there. And I think both of those places where they come from in their history also often leads to mental health concerns. And I think that's a common thread between the clients that I had that were those facing the criminal justice system in Australia and and often um, people come before that system because of their history, what they've been through, often mental health issues um, that lead them to those kind of situations that they might find themselves in. And then obviously it's a different type of legal work with the refugees, but they, um, having gone through traumatic circumstances to get here, often have uh, mental health concerns. And then often because of the situation we put them in offshore, and that was all the work we were doing, was looking at the mental health conditions that developed because of that. It's very difficult to come to terms with the fact that a government policy can bring about this sort of pain and suffering. Why was there such an increase in self-harm and suicide attempts on Nauru in 2018? I think that people had been there for so long. By that stage, I think it was five years. So five years they had been confined to this island, to a demountable-style housing. Um, many of them had had their refugee applications and interviews processed and finalised within the first year or two. So that's why they were there, for processing. 
those that had a positive determination were found to be genuine refugees. Obviously, there, there were thousands of people. Not everyone got that status, but certainly a significant majority and of the clients that I had had that status, went through the whole process, uh, had to give their story, had to be questioned on it, stories verified, and through uh, the outcome of that process, received a positive determination. So it's found that they're genuine refugees and then they still continue to spend two, three years in an isolated, very remote island. And you then saw in 2018 the US process, either people getting refused from that process as well, and that then was another nail in the coffin, so to speak, because then there really was no other option. Australia has given them, and still now, no other option of where they are ultimately going to be able to live their life. And when uh, you've been stuck in camp for five years and then your last option or your only option has gone, that you've been waiting for an outcome for a couple of years, there's really, for them, nothing else to live for. And I think that's where not only the resignation syndrome then develops, but then um, mental health uh, conditions and illnesses that are evident through self-harm and suicide. So the process of being found a genuine refugee is traumatic in itself. And then even when they're found to be genuine refugees, there's still no clear way forward. We've seen recently with the story of the Biloela family how incensed we can be about people being separated from their families. But the story is not an outlier. Can you tell me about the case AYX18? AYX is a, a young preteen boy uh, on Nauru. He arrived there, as most families did, uh, in mid to late 2013 uh, with his mother and father. His father then at one point was in a motorcycle accident and suffered brain injury and mental health conditions because of that. On Nauru, there are demountables where refugees live once they're found to be a refugee and that's called in the community. It's not really community housing, it's, it's groups of demountables together. And then there's also the detention centre which has a number of different areas and one of those areas are the accommodation areas which are again demountables but they're surrounded by a fence and they have security staff and healthcare staff to watch people. So when people are unwell, they often get taken to um, these areas within the, the detention centre for, um, ironically, respite care or supported care. And so his father was taken there because of his mental health conditions. Then his father was transferred to Australia for further treatment without... Um, either father or son being able to say goodbye to each other. And as we see in, in almost every case where clients are transferred either between Nauru to PNG for treatment, to Australia, from Australia back to Nauru, it's inexplicably for some reason in the middle of the night or late hours or early morning as if these people are some sort of threat or flight threat I can't see any reason to it, but it uh, leads to uh, a lot of distress, obviously. So AYX had his father taken away from him and he then started to display symptoms of depression, self-harm and suicide attempts. This was few, a couple of years before NJP even became involved. And despite the government knowing 
what family separation does to people and particularly children, growing children, they were never reunited. And despite multiple medical requests that the only way for AYX to help treat uh, his mental health that was deteriorating was to reunite them. And the government didn't do that. And so then uh, the beginning of 2018, he was having further suicide attempts, overdose, his mother's medication that he'd found, and uh, the NJP became involved. And so we uh, received all of his medical records. We wrote to the government showing the medical reasons why he needed transfer, showing the medical care that was required and that he couldn't get that on Nauru. And the government didn't respond. And then eventually uh, we were left with no other option but to go to court for him. And we went to a court hearing to argue that his life was at risk and the court needed to order an injunction to make the government transfer him for medical treatment. And the court granted that order um, to transfer him and his mother uh, to Australia. Thank you for sharing that story. What is your hope for the future for people seeking asylum? That there is an option for them to apply for a visa of some sort, a, a proper one, not all of the the difficult bridging visas that have to be renewed every six months, but a permanent type of settlement visa so that they can just really begin to move on because they they can't get better and recover from their injuries if they're still in this limbo, if they can't work, if they can't go to uni or to do TAFE courses or to settle down roots and form relationships. So I think definitely them having that ability, the ones that are here, to be able to live here and obviously those that are still in Nauru and Manus to just bring them here for processing. If they can still go to the US, great. If they can decide that New Zealand's an option, great. And then for those that are still coming and seeking asylum, because it's going to, it's an ongoing issue, it's happened all throughout history for whatever variety of reasons, you know, the vast majority of us have come here um, in similar circumstances, our ancestors. And so for future asylum seekers is to have an efficient processing system that doesn't take seven years and that processes them either in Australian detention centres if there's any sort of um, questionable risk or in the community whilst uh, their application's processed and then have an option for them at the end of that process. Emma Hearn, thank you for your time. Talbot is a senior solicitor and legal practice manager with the NJP. Her work involves holding the government accountable for harming people held in offshore detention. She's run many cases in the federal court to force the minister to provide essential health care to refugees, some of whom have been close to death. Anna Talbot has a wealth of experience in the international law space, and I asked her to explain international law. International law is not law that we, in the same way that we understand law in a domestic context. There's no police force that can come and arrest a government for not having met its human rights obligations. It's very much a tool of diplomacy. Um, It's framed in a way that governments are encouraged to comply with their international human rights obligations. 
there's language used that complying with those international human rights obligations is compulsory, but the reality is that there's very little that other governments can do or the UN can do to force compliance. Um, the only way that compliance can be encouraged is through the UN human rights monitoring mechanisms. Um, and so those mechanisms allow an examination of each country's uh, compliance with the obligations that they've signed up to, um, and also through state-to-state -state diplomacy. So state A can go to state B and, and say that, you know, we have noticed that you're not complying with your human rights obligations and we encourage you to do so. Uh, sometimes there might be a bit of a stick added to that diplomacy that if you don't do so, then we won't trade with you. Um, but that's, you know, all, all adds into the, the diplomatic equations that each state makes. We've heard about how Australia was instrumental in formulating our international law framework. When did Australia's treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum change? I think the Children Overboard uh, events of 2001, I think it was, were, was a pivotal moment. Um, it, we saw Howard coming out and making these horrific accusations against people who were asking Australia for help. The accusations being that People were throwing their children overboard um, to manipulate the Australian government into allowing those people to seek asylum, which clearly and offensively misrepresented what was in fact happening um, on that day. And had you know, had it been a different set of political leaders, who knows what would have happened. But um, I was perhaps more shocked by the lack of any clear correcting of the record as as that as that narrative unfolded that in fact this is not people trying to manipulate us this is actually people who are in desperate need of help and they're fleeing countries that are very dangerous for them and they're trying to get their children to safety the false narrative about the children overboard was never corrected and in that sense, the narrative's built on a lie. I think there's also an element of creating a common enemy or creating a straw man. You know, we, we have created this demon, this, this person to be feared, this person on a boat seeking asylum, and we have defeated that person. We are the ones keeping you safe. Of course, that person on the boat seeking asylum wasn't putting us at risk. Um, they're not keeping us safe from anything. In fact, if anything, they're putting us at greater danger by fermenting this intolerance in our society and harming people who ask us for help. But by creating that narrative, they can win the argument as they frame it. And now it's, now it's uniform on both sides. Um, so a lot of people don't realise that there is another way to be dealing with this. They don't see that there are other options that we can, in, in fact, deal with asylum seekers humanely without causing them lifelong damage. You're right. There are alternatives. And this issue being a vote winner is really starting to lose its power. Is it also a case of a leadership vacuum? I, th I mean, as I said before, I think there was a particular political dynamic at, in play at, the, at that pivotal moment. Around the same time, I think the Children Overboard event happened within a month of terrorist attacks in New York. So I think that was a moment that was very easily able to be manipulated by people who wanted to present refugees as the other, as the dangerous other. Um, there wasn't an effective opposition at the time on this point. Um, which I think was a real missed opportunity. Or in the Hawk is that um, there was absolutely no no appetite or no uh, tolerance for any level of racism in in the political discourse. And Hawk was very strong in his um, advocacy for eliminating racism. He offered asylum to people following the massacre in Tiananmen Square. He was very vocal in his condemnation of apartheid in South Africa. 
so that was, you know, the 80s, very early 90s. It wasn't that long until we got to the children overboard point. Um, but there seems to have been a massive um, change in the Australian psyche. I mean, I guess in one way it's a, it's a demonstration of, of the power of leadership. Howard's style of leadership, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what Howard's thoughts were on any particular issues, but it was quite clear that he was, he chose to demonise those people on that ship who were photographed with their children over the banister, um, who were trying to get their children to safety, who he said were trying to put their children in danger. So it was a very different narrative all of a sudden, just based on a different leader and their priorities. How would you like Australia's immigration law to be in the future? I'd like it to be based from a place of humanity uh, rather than targeting the other, seeing us as common humans all sharing the planet together. When people are in Australia's care, we need to care for them. When people have had their own agency removed by what Australia has done by taking them to a foreign country, by preventing them from leaving that country without the Australian government's permission. We need to take care of them. I don't think that is too much to ask. And when it comes to people in Australia now, whether they're in immigration detention facilities or hotels or, or community detention, um, I mean, you know, we're all just human. We all just want to get on with our lives. These, a lot of these people that I've worked with have had their lives on pause since they were persecuted in their home country. They, they didn't do anything wrong. They haven't left their home countries because they felt like a holiday or they felt like getting a better job in a different country. They left because they were being persecuted, because their lives were at risk, because you know they were at risk of torture, sexual violence. But these are really serious problems. So you know, just we need to treat them with humanity and respect, and and recognise that. They have a need to be able to hope that future, their future is one worth living. The future should really be one worth living for. Anna Talbot, thank you for your time. This podcast has been about my search for answers. And the more answers I've found, the more they seem to support the case for changing our inhumane policy. This is the last of our scheduled episodes. We'd really love to organise a forum with leading policy experts in this area to discuss and find the way forward. In the meantime, I'd encourage listeners to engage with our social pages and to contact your local members and ask for action. Support the debate of Andrew Wilkie's bill to end arbitrary and indefinite immigration detention. Thank you to our amazing guests for their time and their many talents. They've shown us that our best and brightest don't support this policy. We'd be kidding ourselves if we think this is a fair system. It's not morally, ethically, economically or legally acceptable. The only thing that is keeping this inhumane policy in place is perceived political expedience and a sad lack of moral leadership. Let's send a clear message that we do not accept this policy as the only way forward. You've heard a range of alternatives here. I still think that we're a country that believes in the fair go. Let's work towards a fair go for all Australians, and that includes new Australians and potential future Australians. How we treat the most vulnerable people says a lot about our national character. Let's employ the golden rule by treating others as we'd like to be treated. It's really simple when you think about it. Your mum and dad probably explained it to you a very long time ago. It's essentially about empathy, fairness, and dare I say it, it's about the vibe. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 13 
1114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. Women and Children First is an Integra co-production in association with the National Justice Project. Produced and mixed by Alex and Gal Roussos. Artwork by Kerry Hardy from Black Sheep Studio. Original music by Tim Hall and Alex Roussos. Visit the Women and Children First Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. WACF Podcast. (laughs) 